Welcome to Plodcast uh, number 46. Uh, man, 46. That's a, this is one long road trip. Thanks for sticking, uh, sticking with us. Thanks for being here. So uh, I wanted to talk about our president again. Um, in, um, as I record this, uh, it's the day before uh, his uh, meeting with um, Kim Jong-un in Singapore. And, um, and he's going in there as Mr. Um, Negotiator Man, as the Art of the Deal Man, and um, much to the derision of a lot of people. And um, I'm not saying anything one way or the other about whether this is going to come out all right or not. Um, but I think the chances of it coming out better than it has been are pretty good. And the, and the reason uh, for that is, oh, well, the reason, the, the reason I'm uh, mildly optimistic, I'll just put it that way, the reason I'm mildly optimistic is that um, President Trump really knows how to negotiate. He really does know how to work his adversaries. He really knows how to play the psych game. And, and incidentally, if I can put a parenthetical comment here, uh, I'm not right now addressing the um, morality of all this. If I were a pastor of, um, uh, of a parishioner who was involved in some uh, high-stakes corporation negotiating thing, there are tricks there are tricks and devices that he might ask me about that I would say, no, a, a Christian can't do that. That's deceitful. Or a Christian can't do that. That's manipulative and stuff. So I'm, I'm not addressing the morality of this. Uh, what I, I simply want to observe that what a lot of people think might be going on is not what is actually going on. And that's because um, Trump is a pragmatist who is heading in a different direction than most pragmatists usually head. Now, when people go to Washington, either because they are... Uh, just got elected to Congress or they're going there to make a difference or they're going to be a staff intern or they, you know, they if, if they go to Washington, um, they are going there for one of two reasons. They are either going to uh, make a difference because they are ideologically committed. They have a coherent worldview of how politics ought to ought to be, how it ought to run, and what the laws ought to look like. And they've got this uh, goal in front of them, and they want to make what's actually going on more like what they think should be going on. And so they want to go make uh, a difference. They go there with stars in their eyes. They go there in order to make a difference. The other people who go there are simply uh, looking at what side the bread is buttered on. They, they want to uh, they, they want to jump at the main chance. And so they go there as um, they, they go there in order to shinny up the greasy pole of ambition. All right, so they, they are the pragmatists and they will do whatever suits them. Now, I, I would describe, I would not describe Trump as an ideological conservative. I've got conservative presuppositions. I'm uh, committed to uh, conservative principles, and uh, I don't think that that's what Trump is about. I don't think he's an. I don't think he's got a conservative worldview 
where he has it all reasoned out and that's, that's what motivates him. I think he's a pragmatist, but I don't think he's a pragmatist like all the other pragmatists. I think he's a contrarian pragmatist. I think he learned a long time ago that you can, you can do what works to, to achieve whatever your goal happens to be at the time by defying the conventional wisdom of the pragmatists telling you what you must do if you want to be a good little pragmatist. Most of the people going to Washington to be pragmatists are going there to be good little pragmatists. I think Trump figured out a long time ago that you can get what you want in a negotiation in a negotiation by being disruptive, by being unpredictable, by being inconsistent, and by keeping the people you're negotiating with on their heels all the time. In other words, he's not a tame pragmatist. He's a pragmatist, but not a tame pragmatist. And so consequently, uh, when people try to analyze what's going on, uh, when he says radically inconsistent things about tariffs, tariffs are great, tariffs are wonderful, tariffs are the best thing that ever happened, and then we, we ought to have more ta tariffs. Tariffs are like food, air, and sunshine. Um, and then uh, a week later, he's saying, well, his goal is to have a tariff-free zone throughout Europe. And everybody says, well, that's not consistent. That's not consistent. Which, wh what is it? What, what is it that you're arguing? Well, uh, Trump is not on a debate team trying to, to, trying to score points with the judges for consistency. What he's trying to do, and this is all comes back to the art of the deal, what he's trying to do is get the people he's negotiating with where he wants them to be, and part of that means keeping them off balance. So, for example, uh, the tariffs that he applied to China, when, when people were um, yelling about his uh, idiotic approach to tariffs, one of the things he was doing was uh, threatening uh, to slap tariffs on China, um, he, uh, people were yelling uh, at him, don't you know, um, don't you know that uh, tariffs are idiotic and they don't work and etc. And then suddenly North Korea comes to the table. Well, what's, what's happening, it seems to me, is that uh, Trump, when, when Trump talks about tariff, uh, tariffs being applied to China, he's actually talking about pressure being applied to North Korea by China. Uh, China doesn't want tariffs. China doesn't want a trade war with the United States. And China wants to save face. So if, if, uh, if Trump threatens tariffs, and then all of a sudden, uh, look over here, North Korea is coming to the table, uh, I think people need to recognize that uh, although, uh, how should I put this? Although uh, Trump has uh, often reacts as though he's hypersensitive, in other respects, he, he has a hide like a rhinoceros and just doesn't pay attention to what everybody's saying. And so consequently, if he wants to get somewhere, I, I wouldn't be surprised, for example, if uh, this uh, the whole G7 summit that he walked away from was not about us applying tariffs, but ab about us threatening tariffs. So there's a difference between applying tariffs 
which doesn't make sense if you want free trade. Uh, that's, but threatening tariffs is not the same thing as applying them. Threatening them, not no, threatening them if you have no intention of applying them, is not intellectually consistent. It's not ideologically consistent. But that's part of my uh, whole point. I think that uh, Trump has mastered the art of creative disruption when it comes to negotiating. He knows how to keep the people he's negotiating with off balance. And I think that that's what he's doing. So um, if, if he says or does something with which good free market conservatives disagree, which he frequently does, one of the things that I think we need to learn to do is just sit tight and watch what comes out of it. What, what's the final deal like? What's it, what happened when you actually got to the point where you put signatures on the paper? What does that look like? Um, and I think Trump is willing to look wildly contradictory, wildly inconsistent, wildly um, um, foolish in order to get where he wants to go. Now, I'm not saying that where he wants to go is always the smart or shrewd thing, but I think that we have to recognize that things have actually, if you, if you, if you ignore the chatter, if you ignore the commentary, if you ignore the people saying that was unpresidential and that was unpresidential and that was even more unpresidential, uh, I'm, not, um, I'm not arguing the case. I, I'm willing to grant it. I, I wince plenty of times. I go, oh, you didn't really, <laughs> you didn't really. But what is it, how does it land? And in a lot of these things, we've had ugly flights and smooth landings. Ugly flights and smooth landings. So I'm, I'll be very interested to see what comes out of the North Korea uh, uh, negotiations. I'll be very interested to see how um, tariffs get used in as a bargaining chip and not as a uh, ideological commitment. And we'll see how it goes. So here we are, uh, continuing with podcast episode 46. And the book I want to uh, recommend to you this time uh, is by Van Hooser, uh, Biblical Authority After Babel. Biblical Authority After uh, Babel. So here's the thing. It is... Um, it is, uh, how shall we say, cool. Uh, it is what all the cool kids are saying these days to say that the Reformation was a bad deal. And um, this, this particular book just uh, stoutly rejects that idea. And he, uh, he argues for uh, what he calls uh, mere Protestantism. And uh, the mere Protestantism that he's arguing for, um, he, is, um, he develops around the five solas. So he works through the solas of the Reformation, and he shows that uh, Reformation, uh, Reformation theology, a mere Protestantism, and he concludes with an evangelical Protestantism. He emphasizes that a conversionist uh, evangelical Protestantism is genuinely in line with Reformed Catholicity. So the uh, Protestant project, by being fragmented, by being disorganized, by being kind of chaotic, 
by having all these different denominations means that you have to take other voices from the church into account. If you have this one monolithic, um, basically, it's like uh, the free market applied to uh, theological debate. If you have one monolithic church and you have um, things decreed from on high, as you had uh, in Europe before the Reformation, it's easy for that kind of thinking to get ingrown. It's easy for it to to get to the point where it needs to be ventilated some. And and Van Hooser is um, he's he's not arguing for he's not applauding sectarianism. He's not applauding the um, the tendency to to split and then split again and split again, you know, fulfilling, <laughs> fulfilling the Great Commission, one church split at a time. Um, that's, not, that's not what he's after. That's not what we're after. At the same time, there is a common thread that runs through Protestant uh, theologies, th- Protestant theologies of various uh, denominational stripes. And he, he does an outstanding job of showing how the five solas uh, that uh, describe the Reformation, and just as a parenthetical comment, it's not clear when um, uh, it's not clear when we started describing the uh, Reformation in terms of the five solas: sola gratia, sola fide, and so on. Um, uh, ben Merkel um, uh, has tried to track it down and thinks it it was uh, possibly. Um, uh, put together first by R.C. Sproul. Uh, others think it it surfaced sometime in the 20th century. It was not um, Martin Luther didn't walk down to the uh, door church door in Wittenberg uh, chanting the five solas. This is a this is a description that is was placed on the uh, the teaching of the Reformation after the fact. And what Van Hooser does is. Um, uh, he works through the five solas one at a time, and he shows that if you take a mere Protestant approach uh, to all of them, and uh, to, to, to all of them singly and then again together, at the end what you get is a robust doctrine of the royal priesthood of all believers. And this can be held in, um, th- this can be held in a truly reformed, Catholic way, where it's not sectarian, it's not uh, schismatic, it's not the kind of thing where, you know, it's like the, like one Quaker said to the other Quaker, nobody left but thee and me, and I've got my doubts about thee. It's not like that. So, uh, I commend Biblical Authority after Babel. It's a very densely packed book, so I would recommend reading it in short bits. Uh, it's not the kind of thing that you could easily sit down and, and uh, read in one sitting. Uh, it's densely reasoned, tightly packed, but uh, he gets off a number of... Um, he, he doesn't write like a dry and dusty academic. It's uh, very scholarly, but he, he pops off uh, periodically, and uh, I, I, just, I just enjoyed the book. I commend it to you. Biblical Authority after Babel. God, God 
So in our study of hamartiology, um, we have come to the word for, from which our study is named, hamartia, uh, or the verb form uh, hamartano. And, um, and so there are so many uses of the word for, for sin or sinning uh, in the Bible that we've had to break this up. So um, in this episode of the podcast, episode 46, in case you lost track, um, we're going to consider the use of these two words in, um, in the Gospel of John. And so, uh, and, and we're going to have to um, save some of our treatment for the same word uh, for weeks to come. The Johannine use of hamartano and hamartia is, is pretty straightforward. After Jesus had healed the lame man at Beth- Bethesda, he told him to go and sin no more, hamartano. Lest a, wor- uh, lest a worse fate befall him. That's in 5.14. He does something similar, but, a, but with a very different tone, with the woman caught in the act of adultery in 8.11. Go and sin no more. In the next chapter, the disciples asked, Who sinned, the blind man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus replied, Neither. That's in 9, verse 2 and 3. Comparing the first with the third exchange, we see that the lameness of the first man was related to sin, and the blindness in the third case was not. It's this kind of thing that makes it inconvenient to try to put God in a box. In other words, the blind man, Jesus expressly says that the blind man was not blind through any sin of his own or through any sin of his parents. But then when when he heals the, the lame man at Bethesda, he says, go sin no more, lest something worse happen to you, assuming that, uh, well, he may have been there because of sin. With regard to Hamartia, we have a number of instances in John. John the Baptist declared that Jesus was the Lamb of God, come to take away the sin of the world, 129. In the Lord's great collision with the Pharisees in chapter 8, he says that they will die in their sins, that's 821 repeating this twice again in verse 24. In verse 34, he says that whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And at the conclusion of the exchange, he challenges them, which of you convinceth me of sin? Verse 46. Now, when the healed blind man states the obvious, if this man were not of God, he could do do nothing, the Pharisees, Pharisees retort that he was altogether born in sins. That's in 934. But Jesus confronts them at the end of the chapter, verse 41. If they were blind, they would have no sin. But they claimed to see, and so it was that their sin remained. There are a few other examples. Jesus, as the light of the world, revealed sin by his presence. If he had not come and spoken, they would not have had sin. But as it was, they had no covering for it. That's in 1522. The same point is made two verses later, verse 24. When the Holy Spirit comes into the world, he will do a very similar kind of work, 16, 8, and 9. And when Jesus is on trial before Pilate, he says that those who delivered him over to Pilate had the greater sin, verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 11. And then after the resurrection, the Lord tells the apostles that they have the authority through the power of the Holy Spirit to remit the sins of others. That's in John 20, verse 23. God in the time of the sickness, God in the doctor too. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. 
to hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.